Welcome to Professionally Challenged, war stories from leaders driving change in law firms. Your hosts are Rob Patterson of Parkins Lane Consulting Group and Paul Evans of Toro Digital. Hi, today we're talking with Alistair Marshall, the Director of Professional Services BD. Alistair is a BD consultant to professionals as well as a keynote speaker and prior to consulting, he worked as the Head of Marketing and BD at FCB Group, a specialist workplace relations law firm. He was a partner at Julian Midwinter and Associates and for any of the listeners who listened to our past episode with Amy Burton Bradley, you'll know that she recommended that we have a chat with Alistair and also a variety of executive sales roles across a range of industries. Welcome to the show, Alistair. Thank you, gents. Good to be here. Welcome, Alistair. This is Rob. Hi, Rob. Um, we might just kick off with a few icebreakers. So, Alistair, tell me, what was your first ever job? My first ever job? I have a confession. I was a banker. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> So, did you say banker? I did. And uh, I, I went into banking for four years and realised probably after six weeks that it wasn't really what I wanted to do, but it took me four years for the escape committee to come up trumps um, <laughs> before I got into business development. But, uh, yes, banking was my first proper job when I left school. Very good. Well, then the next question will be interesting. So what was your first car? I'm well, now thinking a, BMW. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 nothing so grandiose. So um, I, I learned to drive in my mother's Nissan Stanza, which I famously <laughs> drove into a wall <laughs> on more than one occasion. But the first car I owned, I never actually bought a car of my own. My first car in my name was my first company vehicle. Uh, when I sold Fosters in the UK, and someone thought it was a good idea to buy me a Ford Fiesta with a one-liter engine. It would have been. Unfortunately, when you put cases of beer in the boot, the front wheels almost came off the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it did not to 100 kilometers an hour in about three days. But, um, so that was my first vehicle. It would have been useful on the motorways. Oh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I did end up having a BMW um, when I sold beer later on, and I did have one in the UK before I left, but you'd be glad to know now I don't own a car at all. Yeah, oh, goodness. I live uh, in, is it in right city living. Yes, yeah, city um, I'm, I'm on trains and Ubers and walk, things like that. Very good. Very good. All right, so we're here to talk about BD. Um, and what sort of kicked off this chat was um, – I guess we were talking about how everyone's time, oh, everyone is limited by time and lawyers are typically very busy people. I, I've always told lawyers that the benefits of BD professionals or coaches, um, those type of people, is that they help lawyers make the most out of their very limited BD time. Um, as a trusted advisor to professionals in BD, you've helped lawyers ensure that they say the right things and do the right things and I guess most importantly focus on the right people. Um, so let's start with the right people. How, how do you suggest lawyers would start with defining that target market? They're currently in that sort of situation of I guess having everyone as their target. Well, let me first of all try and get on side with the audience and say that I have huge empathy with people in law firms who are asked to build a practice because you don't learn this in law school. Mm -hmm. 
And I've been trained for years, both in the UK and Australia, to get more things on the syllabus around business development. Um, eventually, someone moved the goalposts and said, you know, it's not about technical ability anymore, but you actually need to go out and win some work. So in terms of you know, defining your target market, the first thing to do really is do a revenue and profit audit of your practice for the last two or three years. So where did the money come from? What type of clients did that look like? Were they businesses? Were they individuals? What type of work was it? If it was business, what type of sectors was it in? What geography was it? What types of problems did people have? You know, have you got any really deep knowledge and understanding of an area? And I'm always trying to get people to be a bigger fish in a smaller pond. So around to, instead of trying to dominate the market, try and dominate a market, which is a lot easier. And for anyone on the line who thinks I'm bonkers, consider the tens of thousands of lawyers who could potentially be listening to this today. If you're a generalist, every other lawyer listening to this is your potentially your competitor. Whereas if you are, you know, Victoria's go-to property lawyer for the dental industry, my guess is you've probably only got two or three competitors. Correct. Uh, if you want to get famous for something and have real deep knowledge, then you need to decide what you want to be famous for. Although I would say that I meet a few people who claim a space, but when I scratch beneath the surface, I'm not sure how good they really are. So, for example, if you did want to be New South Wales or Victoria or Queensland or wherever's go-to thing for a lawyer, you need to start by reading a few books on how you run a dental practice. Mm. So if I go back 10, 12 years when I decided law firms, God forbid, were going to be the future, I ended, up <laughs> reading two, I ended up reading two or three books on how to run a law firm because I had to have some credibility when I sat with a managing partner and understand his world and understand their world around you know finance and whip and all those really exciting things that you know, I, I had to understand the position. So yep. that would be the first place I would start. And then in terms of how you get perceived as an expert, you know, most of it is around three pillars, which is speaking, writing, and networking on and offline. Um, happy to go into a few more of those if you wish, but we probably could put two podcasts <laughs> on that topic. So I've got to be Alistair, careful. Yeah, so Alistair, I think that's really interesting. I like there's a couple of things that you said that I really like. The first one is sort of testing the veracity of the person's area of specialty. I think often people, as you say, might claim to have an area of specialty, but um, but it's, it may or may not be genuine. As part of that, do you – one of the things I, I've often asked people is how passionate are they about the area? Do you think that's important in terms of selecting an area to focus upon? I absolutely do. And I've written down here, what type of works or what type of clients do you enjoy? Question mark. Yeah. So yeah. chances are you'll, you'll feel much more rewarded in, your, in the role that you do if you work with the types of clients and do the types of work that you enjoy. So if you don't enjoy doing personal injury work, and then don't mm. do it. Go and find something else to do. It's that simple. Yeah, um, absolutely. So you know you need to decide, as I say, at a fairly early age, but that doesn't mean you can't change. I was... I've changed direction twice. The most recently, I was 40 years of age when I decided I was going to be a specialist in law firms, slightly giving my age away there. Um, <laughs> so that was two weeks ago, was it? Oh, bless you for saying so. Uh, <laughs> 50, 53 in two months' time. So uh, <laughs> thank you for your kind words. Um, so it is possible. But in fairness, you know, I, I sat away for probably six months and I just, just did information in books, in 
uh, in webinars. I've I, 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 I digested a whole amount of information as much as I possibly could. And, and you know, realistically, I meet people who say they go the extra mile. But I've actually found the extra mile to be a really lonely place. I don't actually mm. see that many people going there. And if you wish to defend your prices or charge an expert's fee, then frankly, you need to be doing things that other people aren't prepared to do. Yeah. And people right. get busy and, and they start, you know, maybe not doing the things that they should do to be perceived as an expert in the field because they say they get busy. Yeah, mm. right. One One of the um, things that you you touched on at the start was that to look at your previous history, so what kind of clients you've been working with, whether it's geography, your industry, etc. What do you suggest, I guess, to quite junior lawyers? Like, how do you how do you suggest that they kind of start with this having like a, a niche? Uh, it's it's a question I get a lot. Um, I coach junior lawyers in BD, sure. and, and I get that question quite a lot. I always find it, it's a tricky one to... Well, know. again, I, I would hope that most people would have some idea of the type of work they would like mm. to do. In terms of the ideal client, they would have to base some of it on their experience on the cases that they've worked on, even as a junior. Mm. So even if you've been in a large firm, you'll have been exposed to certain types of casework, and you decide whether you like that or you don't like that. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing that people should be aware of is that people don't choose lawyers or law firms based on longevity. So yep. when I read people's bios and I read, you know, I, uh, I qualified 40 years ago from, <laughs> from the university yeah. and, and then yeah. I started a partnership in 1976 in Dubbo yeah. and I kind of go, so what? So I've met some fantastic lawyers who are in the late 20s, early 30s. Conversely, I've met some pretty ordinary ones who are in the 50s and 60s. And I've seen very good people um, struggle to put a practice together financially. And yet I've seen very ordinary lawyers driving Ferraris. So yep. people need to understand that there's more to this than actually being good at technical delivery. Mm. There's more to it than that. And um, to be successful financially, um, you need to really take on board some of the things we're going to talk through in this session. Yeah. All right. So let's assume you've picked a target market. Um, and before going straight to the flat whites, you obviously want to position yourself as an authority in that space. And you've mentioned the speaking, writing, and networking. So perhaps we just, do we focus on one? Well, I'm, I'm a big fan of speaking. And um, if I go back to, you know, my 20s, when I first got involved with speaking, you know, I was very, very nervous. I wasn't sure whether it was the right thing for me, but I can assure you, if you really want to be perceived as an expert, there's been no finer thing. And in terms of winning new work for me, public speaking at conferences and such would be way ahead of any other route to market for producing yep. interest and leads and getting known. The other thing, if you're time poor, if I go to a conference and I speak to 200 people, it saves me having 200 flat whites. Really good point. So, you know... <laughs> I can deliver my message to a room full of people and I don't have to ring up 200 people and go, is it okay, can we go for a coffee next week? Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many old people will be listening to this, but here's another example of getting a message out. So I guess it's leveraging. So you're not, you're not delivering a message one-to-one, -one, you're delivering a message one-to-many. Mm. And, and that saves you an awful lot of time. But you clearly need to, have a, you need to have something to say and be prepared on what to say when the opportunity arises. Um, and, you know, basic presentation skills can be learned. You know, I, I help a number of people out 
on these things. But as long as you're organised, um, you can. You'd be surprised how good you can be. Having said that, if you do it badly, there's no quicker way to ruin an individual, personal or corporate brand than have the wrong people talking about the wrong things at the wrong event. And we've yeah. all seen it happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's been a few classic examples of that. Um, so... I Can I just add something quickly yeah. on that? Um, yeah. As far as um, speaking in the written world and networking goes... Every professional needs to be prepared, if that's the right word, to answer the question that always comes up: What is it that you do? What do you do for a living? So whether you're, at a, you know, you're having a, a sausage sizzle with someone, or whether you're at a formal networking event yeah. at a chamber, you know, that question is going to come up, and how you answer that, you owe it to yourselves to give a decent answer. So it's not dissimilar mm. to a headline in a newspaper. If the headline's a bit dull, I don't really want to read the rest of the story. And, you know, we'll all have tales of where we sat at a dinner event and someone introduced themselves and said, hello, what are you? I'm an accountant. And you just went, wow, I can't wait for the rest of this dinner. Or, I'm a tax accountant. <laughs> and you were just, you know, thrilled that for the next three hours of your life, you know, you were going to sit next to a tax accountant. So you need to be, you know, interested in the headline. And it, it takes a little bit of work. But again, two or three sentences that essentially describes what you do, who the target audience is, and what the result is of what you do. Because people don't buy legal services, mm. you buy the result of those legal services. Yeah, yeah, I've often seen that expressed as, you know, perhaps sort of three statements, you know, which might be like, you know, when this happens, well, what I do is this and, and the outcome is, is X. So, yeah, so you sort of put it in context for people. Yeah, or I enjoy working with people who have such and such issues. This is what we do. This is yeah. the result. Yeah. So it's conversational. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, Alistair, in with your speaking engagements, one of the things that often drives me to distraction is when I've, I've teed up someone to do a speaking engagement and they turn up a minute before they have to speak and they rush out the door the minute they're finished speaking. Would you encourage people to turn up a bit earlier and network, and then perhaps hang around a bit afterwards and just... Um... All of the above. Mm. <laughs> so especially if people have paid you to be there, then yeah. I think it looks pretty rude to fly in and fly out. Yeah. Um, I think if you go early, you, you can be more relaxed, especially if you're a nervous person. I think if you can get hold of a who's who in the zoo list before you go, mm. you can try and pick off a few key people in the yeah. audience as and when they come into the room. I tend to find it relaxes your nerves when you actually meet one or two of the audience mm. before you start speaking. Yeah. Um, and certainly after the event, in terms of, you know, it, you have to understand why you're speaking. What's the purpose? Why are you there? Is it just to uh, build sort of a profile or is it actually to try and get leads to do work together in the future? And most lawyers probably are speaking for that reason to try and turn it into instructions. And that's not really likely to happen unless you have you know, a set way of ending the presentation and some follow-up actions. That, yes. That's a call to action and gets people mm. to engage and do something as a result of the talk. And because people don't do that particularly well, lots of people do lots of uh, talks but actually don't find it turns into billable work, which is a mix. What Can I ask why do you think that is? is it, do you think it is that lack of follow-up or do you think it's just like a lack of confidence in actually asking for 
the latte. No, the... I, no I think in, in fairness, it's be, and again, I go back to my earlier comment about having huge empathy with people. No one's ever been taught on what to do. Yeah, okay. Um, so, yeah. you know, if, if, you, if I take a, for example, and I think that's always a good way of illustrating is actually, you no, know, I would never ask people to do anything I've not done myself. So, um, you know, if I go to speak at the Australian Legal Practice Managers Association, 200 people in the room, Mm. At the end of the conversation, there's always a reason to come up and hand me your business card, yeah. whether that's because I'm going to give a free session away, a free report away, a free webinar, a free video, a free ebook, whatever it is. And out of an audience of 200, I'll probably get at least 50 up to 75 people, assuming I've made a good impression, mm. will come and want something free because humans are inherently greedy. <laughs> and, and then, funnily enough, I then have 75 warm leads to put in the database, 75 people to connect with on LinkedIn, and you know, and then you can choose the follow-up that you want to do with which people. Yep. So, but no one's, if you know one's ever told them to do that, then why would they think of doing it? So, <laughs> yeah, makes sense. So, okay, let's assume you've locked in the coffee, like you've you've got that database, and you've decided these are the few people I want to catch up with and have a coffee but what would you say where, like where where would you start I think there always has to be before you go there has to be an objective what does success look like for both you and the person who you're going to go and meet because yep. in most cases lawyers will be meeting with uh, potential clients or referrers who will already have an incumbent lawyer yep. it's pretty unlikely yep. in most types of law unless it's pure litigation, which can be ad hoc. Mm. But for lots of commercial stuff, they'll already have an ongoing person. So yep. you need to understand what your expectation is and don't expect too much too soon. But you need to bring value to every meeting. So what's the sizzle in the meeting? So, you know, can you bring research? Mm -hmm. Can you bring something of value? Some, I call people infopreneurs. What's the information you can provide that's going to give people a reason to come to the flat white in the first place? Yep. Because if you ask, to actually talk about rather than sure. just the coffee for coffee's sake. Sure. So, mm -hmm. um, some years ago, um, I was involved with research asking 150 law firms how they won new work, how much time they spent on it, how many dollars they spent on it. I haven't met many people who I go, I'll meet you for a flat white and I'll share some of the results about what the winning firms do. That's a reason there's value in meeting me for a coffee. It's not just coming to say, hello, how are you type of thing. Yep. Um, and there's a, there's a value share that goes on there. I'd certainly avoid the history lesson. I've seen too many people go and give a history lesson. Yep. So yep. Um, that's, you know, I'd much rather have a signature piece of content rather than a, hello, I'm so-and-so, I work at this firm. We've got so many partners in so many interstate offices. We've been around yep. 100 years. Yep. You know, there's just no value in that. Yep. So do you think there's like a, a creating something that you can then have a discussion with for people? Yeah, I think yeah. Yeah. put yourself in the shoes of the of the potential client. What what do you know that they don't know? So mm. people aren't buying your time, they're buying your intellectual property. So you owe it to yourself to put it into small nuggets that you can share with people in these types of meetings. Yeah. I read a book recently by um, a gentleman called David C. Baker, and that's exactly his advice is to have that kind of nugget. The book's called The Business of Expertise for anyone who's interested. But he's like, as an expert, it's the one thing that you can withhold is your expertise. So you need to develop whatever that expertise may be. So that's the yeah. thing that you can. And, and, yeah. and it, it might only be an opinion on a 
on a mm. current matter or topic. But if you want to put yourself out there as an expert in the field, people will expect you to have an opinion on things. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it doesn't always have to agree with the market. Yep, totally. Yeah, one, of, one of the the texts that I quite like in terms of BD is challenger sales. And I think the point that they often make is that, and it's aligned with what you're saying, Alistair, is that you know, at that meeting you need to have an opinion and perhaps even be prepared to have an opinion that's in contrast to the person you're meeting with. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, And challenge them a bit around their, their view of the world and, and perhaps why they should be using you. You know, in many cases for lawyers, you have to generate the new instruction by taking people to a place in the future that perhaps they haven't seen themselves. Yes. Especially if you're litigators, I would have thought it's key stuff. So, you know, talking about the future or a change in litigation or looking at trends in a market or any of those things Mm. would be good places to start. The problem I see with too many lawyers is they do want to do all the talking. So, so 30 minutes of a coffee meeting involves 22 minutes of them giving a lecture about how good they are and maybe eight minutes of the other person in a response. Whereas, you know, the the good guy, you know, sometimes people say to me, Alistair, you've got the gift of the gab, but you're good at this sales stuff. And I kind of go, well, I'm okay. I can hold my own. But the reason I'm better is because I have a great set of questions ready so I get better quality answers. Mm. And so I'm not doing all the talking. I'm just guiding the conversation, but I'm doing it with an agenda of questions, mm. which gets people talking. So they, mm. you know, once they start talking about their own issues, they then look fairly strange if they don't take action to try and solve those issues. That's true. Yeah, I, one of my early mentors said, "You've got two two ears and one mouth, and you should use them in that proportion." Yeah, and, and we've all met people who don't. Mm. <laughs> Um, so for that first meeting do you think there's anything that lawyers should be bringing to it to that meeting would it be the research possibly the signature content if they have such a thing mm-hmm. um, I personally always take uh, a set of questions with me and I'm and I usually put it on the table so people can actually see it so there's no secrets really? here yeah <laughs> so it's like an agenda because yeah, A, yeah, to me, yeah. there's a few things that happen here. So sales, a lot of sales is mental. So um, initially, it says to the person, I'm taking this seriously, mm-hmm. not just a hello catch-up meeting. It's yep. more important than that. And I've done some preparation. And again, I might use phrases like in preparation for today's meeting. Right. Mm-hmm. So it conveys to them, this is a serious thing. We're not just here to chat about you know, the soccer game or you know, mm-hmm. what was on last night's Home and Away program. There's more to it than that. But again, so I might open it by changing it from a, a talk about general things to here's, it's opening a business conversation. Mm. And then I'm into finding out the needs and wants of the client by asking a number of structured questions, which is yep. not the Spanish Inquisition, but because it's there. And mm. I can make notes because the other thing is about being seen to be an active listener. And one way of demonstrating that in a real world is being seen to make scribbles or notes. Again, if you're in the right environment, you know, you don't want to yep. stalking people and make it you know, put a strange uh, sort of emphasis on it. But it's a, good th- it's a good habit to have. Also, if you're nervous, it stops you forgetting things because you've made notes, so yep. there's no reason to forget. Mm. So it acts as an aid memoir, um, which Very is good. quite useful. So the, 
that's kind of an easy thing to remember if you don't do it now. Have a few questions that you think you want to ask before you get there. Alistair, please tell me you don't ask them what their pain points are, though. No, I don't ask them what keeps them up at night. <laughs> and I've heard, oh, it, I've heard it said too many times. So, so no, leave the generic stuff at home. Beautiful. I really like that idea, though, of bringing a list of questions to a coffee. I don't ask them all. Yeah. No, you know, you wouldn't, know. I also like, I like the transparency of it by putting them on the table. I think that it says a lot, you know, and it says a lot about your confidence and that, yeah, you, you know, like you're, you're open and honest, what you see is what you get as well. Well, one of the things is, I'm a big believer, and you read it a lot now on social media posts, is about the requirement in 2020 of authenticity. Yeah. People buy real people. They don't want the Jack Flash yep. guy who's in, promises a million dollars and goes. So if you just honest with people and you go, look, here's some things there which will help, help me to understand what your current issue is, how it's affecting you, what it's costing you, what you're currently doing about it, what would it be like on, to affect you personally and on the wider business if we solve this, all these types of things. And as I say, I don't ask all of them. You just pick one or two and then there's mm. subsequent questions such as tell me more and help me understand and yeah. all that. But again, we're, we're talking now, we're into almost sales training. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, that's a rare commodity in a law firm. So lots of law firms have a challenge in that. Do they have a marketing problem or a sales problem? So the bigger the firm and the well-known the brand, they don't have a marketing problem. They get lots of opportunities to sit in front of referrers and potential buyers. But the close rate at flat white meetings is poor because no one's ever been taught what to say when they get there. Interesting. Quite so, have to take another view, but that's what people tell me. I no, I well, I I agree with that. I think. Um, a lot of it is actually how do you seal that deal. So um, one of the things that we've discussed before and this kind of ties in nicely is um, that that marketing or sales isn't rocket science, but a lot of it is about consistency in your sure. approach. And we've talked about um, building routines. Uh, what, yeah. what what are, um, I guess, your recommendations for lawyers to build a routine, a routine sorry, or a mm. process? Okay, well, you're right. I don't think it's rocket science. And I, how do I know that? Because I've worked with a lot of, um, I don't know, I've probably done this exercise in over 100 firms in 10 years now. And I've seen very introverted people become very proficient at business development because we gave them a model and a framework to follow. Mm. And uh, they just followed the process. But you don't get it if you put no effort in. So I'm going to say probably two hours a week as a minimum to start mm. building the engine. Avoid Mondays and Fridays because there's too many distractions. So Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, probably book it in between 12 and 2. And the reason I say that is because if you do that, it allows you to get out from behind your desk. So in the modern world, 75% of relationships are started online. Mm -hmm. But in reality, 75% of relationships are closed face-to-face. -face. So mm -hmm. at some point, you have to make the transition from behind your desk to press the flesh to go out to close the deal. Yeah. So. Yeah. If you build that two hours, so let's let's just assume it's every Tuesday between 12 and 2. Yep. You tell your EA, you tell your secretary, don't book client time in that two-hour window every week if you can avoid it. Mm -hmm. And it becomes as important as client time. Mm. You have to make that mental change that, you know, instead of this being the last thing to do in my in-tray, every week when I go to bed on a Monday night, I know I've got two hours to doing 
on my BD list on a Tuesday. Yep. And people get more done in three to six months than they have in the previous two to three years because they've given it the focus it deserves. Actually say, blocking out time to do it. Yeah, so you, you, you could have an hour doing a, writing a piece for LinkedIn or an article for the website or blogging or doing a, a webinar piece like we're doing now. And the second hour between one and two, you've got time to go out and meet. So the follow-up question is, well, who do I go out and meet? So uh, the system that I advocate is 555. So it's five existing clients. If you spent more time with, you could get more referrals or work from. Mm -hmm. Five prospective clients who meet the profile of the perfect client, which we talked about earlier. And five referring partners, which could be other lawyers, banks, accountants, whoever your referrers are. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you should go beyond that because if if you're doing work, you haven't got time to hold more than 15 relationships. And it's not about quantity, it's about quality. Mm. So if if you're juggling those 15 balls at any one time, that's more than enough. And if one falls off because they're not interested anymore, fine, replace them with someone else. But when I work with lawyers one-on-one, in the work we do, I always, you know, press this, okay, what's your progress on these 15 relationships? How have you got better this month? What have you done in your two hours a week? Mm. And and it works. So anyone listening to this, there's two pieces yeah, I've re- read a bit about um, Dunbar's number, which is um, the number of relationships that we can have with people at any given time, and, and the number's 150, but that includes obviously all your family, colleagues, friends, etc. So, yeah, I advocate that sort of, I always call it a first 11, but yeah, 15 sounds about right as well. Yeah, I guess um, it's rugby union, it's the first 15. Yeah, right? yeah, I'm a soccer fan. Oh, can we call it soccer? To an Englishman, I'll still call yeah. it football. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Um, you, we, we've kind of mentioned this already, um, but I do want to cover it off, I guess, in a different way. You've obviously worked with a lot of professionals in your career, including lawyers, and I'm sure you've seen some really great examples of those excellent technicians and the poor marketers and vice versa. It's a very, very loaded question. But who tends to be more successful? But I think more importantly, why? Okay, I'm going to say this to you, right? So I think when you leave law school, people say, do good work for good clients Mm -hmm. and it will be enough. Yeah. And if you work at Freels or somewhere like you have in the past, that may be so because the name above the door will help some of the work come in because no general counsel got sacked for hiring Freels. Yep. That doesn't work further down the food chain, if you'll allow me to use the phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the last 10 years since the GFC, I think the goalposts have moved significantly. So, you know, usually if I go into a firm and I go, okay, how do you build your practice? Word of mouth referrals is the number one answer I get back. So even last week when I was running a strategy session in a boardroom, I went around the table and asked all the the equity partners, I said, how many clients have you asked for a referral from this calendar year, bearing in mind there were 11 months in? And most of them, the answer was none. And I'm like, well, you'll be waiting a long time to grow this practice based on referrals. Mm. So I'm a big advocate of having up to 20 routes to market to uh, generate leads and interest. Mm-hmm. And that goes across that speaking writing network that we described before, and that's based on the research of the 150 firms. So I've got a good idea what works and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the and the humorous thing is that the top three wastes of money are the top three expenditures in most marketing <laughs> budgets at law firms in Australia. Oh, what are they? <laughs> 
Well, I don't think you'd be surprised at number one. So brand advertising is number one. <laughs> so brand advertising is great for ego. Partners are on side. They love it. Go and see an advert with the brand on there. But there's no call to action. And it's very hard to measure. And um, it's just a big no. Second one is sponsorships. So that could be events. Lots of law firms do do um, sporting teams on the jersey. But, yeah. you know, you've got to, you ask a question, why every two years do the sponsors on the State of Origin shirt change? It's because the people realise they've had no value from it, so they change. Okay, so that's why. Yeah. Um, similarly, you know, every time I used to go up the escalator at Sydney Airport to the lounge, there'd be a law firm advertising a brand advert at the top of the escalator before you went in the lounge. Funnily enough, that changes all the time. It's not the same one anymore. Why is that? Because they realise that there's no benefit from it. Um, and the third one, which makes me very unpopular with managing partners and equity partners, is 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 the hospitality at the footy, that type of thing. Right? So everyone has a box at the footy. Um, it's excellent for cementing existing relationships, but in the research, in terms of how does it do in terms of onboarding brand new relationships, the answer was really poor. And you know yourself, right? So you ask a load of people who are not well-known to the firm, to come to the football and 48 hours before the event, the cry-offs start to happen. And you end up with Sally from accounts, a husband and her two kids in the box. And that's very expensive. Yeah, literally saying exactly that. So, yeah. So, yep. um, there's three, three key takeaways to avoid for those listening. <laughs> well, Rob's an accountant, so I think you're speaking his language. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, realistically, yeah. one of the other things is, you know, rarely are the BD guys and the accountants bed, best of bedfellows. But mm. you know, in terms of a budget, if every time Rob gave me a dollar, I gave him a dollar twenty back, there wouldn't be a budget. It's just mm. historically law firms spend mm. it on the wrong things, and so they don't, either don't measure accurately or they don't show an ROI mm. considered a mm. cost rather than an investment. So it's one of the first things that gets cut back if things aren't going so well. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And if, and if you are going to entertain, perhaps the, the message is do something that actually your target wants to do or, or something that's a little bit novel or unusual. I think one of the best examples I ever heard of that was a, a partner at a law firm that, that took a prospective client actually from overseas and, and took them on a surfing lesson in Sydney and they still talk about it to this day. It was just novel, thoughtful. Um, yeah, it wasn't just a I'll take you to the footy. It was yeah. what, will they, the, what will this potential client really enjoy? Yeah. It's quite amazing. If my client, if I'm sorry, if my accounting, my accountant is listening, I um, was recently in Singapore for work and my accountant happened to be in Singapore at the exact same date. And anyone who knows me knows I'm a massive Liverpool fan and he was... Um, actually at an event that he was hosting <laughs> with the CEO of Liverpool in Singapore at the same time I was there and I was like, oh, that would have been the perfect relationship <laughs> marketing thing for me. <laughs> but, um, he missed that and I've let him know. His name's also Paul Evans. So. There you go. <laughs> I'm saying nothing as a Manchester City supporter yeah. who's married to a Liverpool supporter. <laughs> uh, you've had it good for a long time. Um, um, 
All right. So I just had a couple of last questions and um, before we get into the lightning round, and it was actually about your ebook, um, which I downloaded, which is the 10 immediate actions to generate revenue and cash. And this is really just something I'm, I think is really valuable. So I want to hit you up about it. Yeah. <laughs> and that was action nine. And it was all about writing compelling copy, whether that's for websites or tenders even like simple stuff like social media. Yeah. I 100% agree that good copywriters are worth their weight in gold, um, which is something I think that you mention in the book. But where have you found really good writers from? Because I think one of the things I've found, particularly for lawyers and copywriters, is that what they're writing about is often quite technical. So finding the right people can be quite hard. Okay, depends on um, the size of the task and what you want them to do. Mm. So if it's straight tenders, it could be someone like Amy Burton Bradley from JMA who you've had on before. Yep. Um, if it's copywriting for more general stuff like web copy, mm. I always used uh, another pommy lady called Elizabeth Wilson Copywriting who's based on the North Shore in Sydney, although in Liz's defence, she's about to give birth in the next month, so she might not totally for passing that lead on but um she's excellent at what she does there there's yep. another guy called ralph graydon from antelope media i think he gets involved okay. in quite a lot of copywriting as well so there's two or three but i know i think in, as lawyers though you must accept that the first draft is likely to be required to be done by yourselves mm. copywriters don't know the law and it has yep. to be legally proficient so mm -hmm. the first draft is always likely to be required before they can make it better if that's the right phrase yep yeah, it's funny. So, in my experience, I tend to use an editor rather than a writer for that exact reason. But yeah, getting the lawyers to write the first draft of the copy is always a, a challenge. And that time poorness. Yeah, um, and they make all the classic mistakes of every sentence or paragraph starting with "we," "us," "our," or the name of the law firm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they talk about holistic solutions and all this kind of nonsense <laughs> that they've read a marketing directory. You know, we are a partner-led, client-focused firm offering holistic <laughs> solutions. You know, it's not really that interesting. Top-tier service at mid-tier prices comes to mind. Another classic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Rob, shall we uh, kick off the yep. lightning round? Yeah, before we do, I'm going to do. I'm going to do something novel. I, one of the things, well, there's a lot of things that Alistair said today that really resonate with him, and I think are gold. But I reckon one of them is just his comment about routine, and I really like that because I've seen a lot of people try BD relationship marketing and failed, and I think he's hit the nail on the head. Routine is such a critical part of that process. So, mm. thank you, Alistair. You're welcome. But, you know, some people ask me, you know, why are the big four accountants more successful than everyone else? And the answer in many cases is just that they're more disciplined at doing this mm. stuff than everybody mm. else. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great advice. And the sad thing is that even after listening to this, most people won't do it. But, yeah, I think if you do, it's... Well, you know, one of the things, you know, it's like sales pitch is having an outsider come and put the size nine up you once a month mm. is that it gets, it gets you over the line where perhaps you haven't been able to do it before. Yeah. You make yourself accountable to someone mm. else. Yeah, correct. All right, lightning round. Okay, <clears throat> what's the best piece of business advice you've ever received, Alison? Well, I found this pretty tough. So I thought of a few. The first one that came to me was get up, dress up and show up. 
<laughs> which it kind of came from the wife who's in the luxury retail business. I love the idea of getting a niche, which goes back donkey's years to Seth Cobbing when he wrote The Purple Cow. Yeah. Um, and I do like the eat the frog idea of do the hard thing in your day first, because otherwise it'll ruin the rest of the day because you're thinking about it all day, but why are you putting it off? Yeah. So I'm a big believer in do the hard stuff early in the morning and get it done. Mm-hmm. I haven't heard Eat the Frog before, but I like the concept. <laughs> I've never had a frog, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I hope that people understand what I'm referring to. <laughs> okay. Now, if someone knew you really well, what is the one thing they'd know about you that others may not? I thought this was really tough. People <laughs> who are really close to me would know I'm incredibly loyal. Uh, so people, and I'm a big believer in fate, and um, so anyone who's helped out me, I go mm. out of my way to make sure I try and do something good for them. I'm a big believer in uh, treating people as they treat you, and if mm. someone does something good for me, then I'll absolutely go do everything and move heaven and earth to make sure I can try and repay that. That's tremendous. Can you nominate another legal industry leader that you hold in great respect that you think that Paul and I should talk to as part of the podcast? Yeah, there's a couple of guys came to mind with this one. So Carl White, who does CX in law, does a lot of the client service and client experience stuff in law firms. I think he'd be great to get on. And a guy called George Hauer, who runs a business called Attention Experts, which is a social media agency. And most law firms have no idea how to do social media properly. And George's expertise is around how you turn social media into dollars, uh, which is definitely not their skill set. So uh, George is a pretty entertaining guy. I think that would be an interesting session to have him on. Brilliant. Thank you. If you could lead any company in the world other than your own, which would that be? Well, that's a much easier question. So I chose Treasury Wine Estates. I'm not sure sure what that says about me, but I I sold alcohol for eight years. I sold beer. But my dream job would actually be in wine. So Mm. a brand that owns Penfolds, Wolf Blast and Wins, Kunawara, which are three of my favourite wine brands, Uh, yeah, (laughs) go home and have a drop of Grange of an evening that that I could just about cope. Otherwise, I wouldn't mind doing Cricket Australia. So I could tour the world watching cricket in the sunshine. Yeah. If you pushed me to be something sensible, I'd have a go at the Law Society to see if I could get business development on the syllabus of a practice management course more than it is now. Yeah, Great. I don't know. I kind of see Cricket Australia hiring someone with an English accent, not after no. all the shit that we've gone through. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We were pretty kind to you last time. We rolled over and let you tickle our bellies. So. <laughs> The New Zealanders might have something to say about that as well. Um, okay, and finally, if listeners want to connect with you, what's the best way to get in touch, Alistair? Well, a website, I guess, is the easiest thing. So if people go to professionalservicesbd.com.au, there's tons of blogs and articles you can engage with there. Um, and you can obviously connect with me uh, through the website or you can email me at APM. Mm at professionalservicesbd.com.au or connect with me on LinkedIn. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much again. 
Thank you for um, the show, yeah. Um, f- and for any lawyers who are listening, uh, that are listening, I'd recommend reading Alistair's e-book, which can be downloaded from that website, and we'll put a, a link to that in the show notes. So thank you so much for being on the show. That flew by. Brilliant. Thanks. All good. See you guys. Thank you for listening to Professionally Challenged. Visit our website at www.professionallychallenged.com and please leave us a review on iTunes. Until next time, bye for now.